0: Welcome to episode 95. Today, we talk with the lovely Dr. Gauri Muhammad on cultivating genius of students who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful Culturally relevant pedagogy is nothing new, yet it is now getting more attention than ever before. And the attention is long overdue. Dr. Goldie Mohammed adds to her work of culturally relevant pedagogy with her cultivating genius model that includes five entry points to center teaching on students and their identities. Pay attention to the roller coaster lesson and her response to how to integrate this model into instruction for students who are acquiring another language. For sure, this is a podcast worth listening to multiple times. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so honored and fortunate to introduce. Dr. Goldie Muhammad to the podcast. It is not often to get a person with an author with 1,300 reviews. Let me tell you, just getting 100 reviews on a book is hard enough. Now you have 1,300. How did you do that, Dr. Goldie Muhammad?
1: (laughs) Oh, well, that's a great question. And I didn't I guess I didn't think about like number of reviews and things. And first let me say how grateful I am um, to have that. And you know, it is just I I think just doing the work that I talk about, like being the action of it, you know. I talk about community work and helping teachers and building leaders and talking to them, helping to nurture you know, who they are so that they can be better for our children and stronger for our children. And so I just started doing that and I love doing it and it comes natural. And I think, you know, the message started to spread and the book started to take off and somebody or 1300 people were gracious enough <laughs> to write a review um, to say how they felt about the writing and the book at large. So yeah, I think it's just from doing the work, sharing the work, being generous with my lesson plans and videos and other resources I share with my educators. I think they appreciate that.
0: There was a person, or I'm gonna read the review in just a second, but they talked about exactly that, your love for students really came out. Let me read you the, the first review here. This book calls for a shift in teaching students of all races and ethnicities. This book will make you rethink the terms at risk and disadvantage. It will teach you the difference between good teaching and culturally responsive social emotional teaching. It will challenge the way you teach more than just skills and it will equip you with the practical ideas to design instruction that truly supports students, personal and intellectual development across disciplines. Read this concisely written book and you will feel Dr. Muhammad's love for young people and her passion for a more complete and equitable vision for education in America.
1: Wow. Wow, that's so beautiful and wonderful. You know, it's funny because that book captures in my heart everything I wanted readers to feel when they read the book, I wanted them to get my love for children. I wanted them to understand the practicality, to know the difference between good teaching and more advanced teaching. I wanted them to you know, think about these deficit terms that we use for children. And so it's so nice that that was expressed. Thank you for sharing.
0: Well, when you talked about deficit thinking and deficit, term, deficit terms, you're speaking to the audience that you're here right now, where you're talking to teachers of multilingual students. And we have been haunted by deficit thinking and deficit language. For example, um, students with limited English proficiency, like all these terms that have really held students back. And when I was looking at your book and I was like, yes, this is, she's writing for a different context but actually our same students, like the BIPOC community.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. For so long, across different groups of children, linguistic uh, children who speak multiple languages, we've always focused on or dual language students. I, I just call them multiple language speakers. And we've always focused on what they can't do instead of what they can. We've always focused on how they respond to one single narrative assessment instead of their genius. And so, the real intention behind cultivating genius was to shift those ideologies and beliefs to start off with they speak more languages than us, <laughs> typically. <laughs> That's how I start the story off. You know, to start the story off differently because our beliefs shape our practices. Yeah, and that's the, that's
0: one of the main things of, about this podcast that I've been hearing from teachers. Like when teachers' teachers' perceptions of students determine the way they teach. And you were just talking about stories now. Would you tell us a story, um, start us off with a story of working with a student that has informed your practice to this day?
1: Wow, I mean, there are so many. Let me see. Um. The one that stands out to me, um, and I talk about this one a lot, so I can think of another two, but I was teaching um, a group of, like, high school students and writing English language arts, and um, I said to the class, you know, during this class, we are going to really center and focus on writing, uh, writing of our identity, writing to define our lives, who we are, whose we are, writing to tell the world that we are not what they might think that we are, if it's negative, you know, like I'm going through all these things with identity. And so we ended the class with some kind of journal free write, And one student wrote a 16 year old child um, who at this time identified as a black girl. Um, Later in life, transitioned and changed pronouns just to give you a little bit of context. But this is what the then 16 year old wrote after I said all that in their journal. When I found out we're talking about identity, it made me very uneasy. Um, Because I don't know who I am fully and not knowing who you are is the worst feeling in the world. And sometimes it makes me cry. And, you know, I had a talk with this child and the child goes deeper. It's like, I don't know who I am fully and I, I don't feel like I can write about myself and then share it publicly. It was just like anxiety, like almost tears coming out. And, you know, knowing this particular child, just to give you extra background, this child has had at this point, straight A's all the way through high school and before that. Later and during this time started to get into all the so-called top colleges and universities across the nation, off the chart in state assessments. I mean, sort of this, successful student. And I remember sharing the excerpt of the journal as I'm writing and thinking about this in my PhD program. And one professor said to me, why are you spending so much time on this child? Why are you feeling so many times? This child is fine. If we all had children like this, we could retire. All A's, college admissions, and so I'm saying all this to say this, skills and academic success is not enough. Right. This child was struggling internally, something was going on. I had to re- respond as the teacher. I couldn't just ignore that. It doesn't matter. All, and we know this, all the success with academics in the world will not make a person healthy and whole. And when we think about just academic success in schools, we are not making the whole child healthy and well. And, and so what I said to the professor, but did you listen to this child's words? Are we saying, are we so caught up with what our perceptions are, our, our values, <laughs> but the child is saying, all oh, that doesn't matter. I cry at night. So, you know, this is one of many examples where I'm listening to children. They're teaching me to be better and I'm using their voices to advocate for better ways in schools and classrooms.
0: I think, um, well, first of all, that really shows the kind of teacher that you are, that you're able to slow down enough to think about that student and every student matters. I think in my own practice, the days when I rush are the days when I am the worst teacher, right? But the days that I'm slow and intentionally like, you and I are here, there are 17 other students, the 20 other students, but in this short conversation, it's just you and I, I'm going to listen, I'm going to slow down. And that has made all the difference. And so you did that for that student, right? And she, you, she felt, or they felt comfortable enough, comfortable enough to pour that out.
1: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. I guess that's important. Right. So then also creating a safe space where because we have to unpack identity, you know, the things that make us uncomfortable now, but on their terms, unpack identity, (laughs) you know, I didn't push anything to happen, you know, but to start to say, that this can just be for you. It doesn't have to be shared publicly. That's the beauty of writing. You get to decide as the writer. And so, yeah, I was grateful that I, in a short amount of time, because we had only been together for a short time at this point, had created a safe enough environment to say that.
0: With this story, how do you think it relates to the central message of your book?
1: That identity matters. Before you get to the standards, the skills, the test prep, the the new knowledge you're teaching, you're imparting, the text, uh, you need to center, know children. You cannot teach who you do not know. Know them deeply, work to get to know them, their interests, their, their joys, Their um, who they are, who they're not, who they desire to be. Identity matters, it must be at the central focus point of all teaching and leadership. That's the first way it relates to the book. And then we need classroom spaces where they can make sense of who they are. No child should have to wait to adulthood. I mean, to figure out who they are, to have self-confidence and to have some sort of entitlement and like, yes, this is who I am. This is who I choose to identify as. You know, it doesn't matter how different this child or any other is from me. You know, people get so caught up because they're different than them. What's that have to do with you elevating who they are as a teacher? And, and, and it shows to me, again, we must listen to the voices of our children. We must use that to direct our next move pedagogically. And then we must focus again and again on identity. You're
0: you're um, channeling Regie Routman, um, who's a literacy expert, and she said, start with the student, not the curriculum, right? And in our content and our current like standard space and standardized test driven experience, it's always about the curriculum, the standards, that first. And so how does that work connect to the audience of students you're talking about, Black and BIPOC students?
1: Well, you know, I talk, I talk about all children, but the, the focus on like BIPOC students is because the world has never centered our beauty, our brilliance, you know what I'm saying? So given the history that we have, we have an expe- especially like this focus that needs to be on them to sort of unlearn some stuff. So, so that's 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 what's really you know important is taking time to say yes. All children need identity. All children need to know who they are. Even white children need to define their whiteness for themselves. You know, like they have to define what kind of white person will I be? White human will I be to the world? And so I think. Uh, but again, the focus is a bit on BIPOC because there's been an erasure of our history. It's been like hidden, forgotten. You know, we have not, um, you know, you had standards that has spoken to our ways of life. Because I look at the common core standards, right, here in the United States where I ask myself, is this common to people of color? Will we have written standards like this? If it's black folks, especially in so many other groups of co- people of color, we would have always included identity. Identity and community are special to so many communities of color where community is strength. So to not have standards that focus on those two themes to me is already like a departure of who we are.
0: It's almost like the medical model of education. Right. It's it's and I know that as an Asian American, like we bring our whole identity as a person to schools, whoever we are, and to separate that. And when there's a separation, we there's an othering of ourselves, right? And that often happens when I when I was young, worked living in a most going to a school where it was mostly white students. There were like five brown students, right? And I had to separate my Asianness from my school. And then that really has taught me to internalize, uh, to develop internalized racism against Asians for so many years until I really worked on that. So the way we teach does have an impact on students and it can be seen in the instruction in even the standards that we create with good intention.
1: Yes, absolutely. And just to go to your point, Tan, like, A child should never have to feel like they have to be somebody else to be accepted to be loved to be nurtured you know that should be teachers should be creating spaces for that child to be celebrated like when i was growing up as like a muslim student a young when we moved to the suburbs and they were all celebrating halloween and we've never did that in islam (laughs) and so i like bought a costume and tried to assimilate and fit in because the teacher never said, never celebrated my holidays, never said, you know, well, keep in mind that there might be some students who, who may feel left out. I don't know, like we want children, we want teachers to make children feel like they don't have to be somebody else.
0: Yeah, I think when I talk to teachers about equity, if it comes down to one thing it, or equitable instruction, it, it comes down to when are we othering others? When are we othering students? And when we have policies or practices that other students, that's when equity is lost.
1: Let's, Absolutely.
0: Let's talk about your cover of your book. It, there's a tree on it. And I always um, always ask authors, what's the seed of this book? So could you tell us the medical for, uh, medical metaphorical seed of this book?
1: Yeah, so, you know... I love artists, I love creativity, I love color. And um, I think initially when we were thinking of ideas for the book, I wanted color, number one. I wanted something that I felt was aesthetically pleasing to the eye. Um, Because I'm a historical researcher and I dig into the earth and the ground to uh, uncover things, Right um, through archival work, I wanted something to be representative of the roots. And you know, lots of people have done like trees in books, right? I mean, like tree is such a beautiful metaphor of life, of growth, of strength, you know, those sorts of things, of history. And I was okay with that. I, I wanted to do a tree too. <laughs> I didn't care how many, I don't operate like that. I don't care who did it. Like if it feels, if it comes to me in my heart, but I wanted the tree to feel like roots in the ground. I wanted to see the roots. I wanted it to feel like, if you look closely, it sort of like feels like a black woman in the trees and the, her arms stretching up. Just to be symbolic of me and my background, my research, my identity, because a lot of this research started with black women and girls for me, the content that's in the book Cultivating Genius. I wanted leaves to be diff, to be like a certain like fading in and out. I want it to kind of feel like I, there was wind. <laughs> emotion, you know, so that was my vision. And that's what, you know, the team came up with. And I I felt good about it.
0: And what was the seed of this book?
1: You know, it's funny, because I'm writing the next book. And this idea of planting a seed, I am really building upon. But, you know, the seed of this book, for me was like, the genius of the ancestral genius that from black literary societies in the United States that I never learned about as a child. Um, I never learned about as a person going through like a teacher preparation program. And I wanted this ancestral genius to be like the seed in which when we read and learn about it, we grow as better leaders, as better teachers.
0: So I, I'll, I know how to end the podcast with a metaphor for the seed. So I'll tell you that much later when we finish our podcast. So I'm excited to bookend that way. Can you uh, tell me more about, tell us more about um, Black literary societies in the 1900s, which I never knew about until I learned about your book.
1: Yeah, so like in the, in the early mid 1800s, like around 1820s when we're Black people in Northeastern cities in the United States, like in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, they had a bit, they had some liberties, right? That's why people escaped to the North toward freedom. They had a little bit more liberties than compared to brothers and sisters of the South. And um, they would organize into, they would build their own schools. They were organized and They were organized to have societies and organizations, anti-slavery societies, benevolent societies, moral societies. They said, we're going to organize to talk about your morals. Um, They had um, religious societies. And then they also had literary societies where they would come together to read and write and pay membership dues. And the membership dues went to their libraries in their books. So every time they paid a fee, they would cultivate and like build their libraries up because members were expected to check out books, read them and sort of come back to the group and share what you've read. So like, if you read, you know, Cultivating Genius, you would take it back to the group and say, you know, this is what I've learned. So it's this constant sharing of knowledge and they studied, you know, mathematics art, science, um, uh, all sorts, language, all sorts of topics. Um, I even read an article that they were reading about Chinese fashion <laughs> during this time. Like they didn't limit their understandings and they, were, they would gather together and they called their meetings intellectual feasts and they would read, write and think, but they were abolitionists so they were working to like make the world better through their through their literacies and through their education and so i would like learn from them and study from them of how to be a better educator and so that's a little bit about these literary societies and they left so much from us to build and learn from more importantly so i when
0: you talked about literary societies and you talked about how there are people come together in groups And to to help each other cement and support each other's identities. And I think about that a lot when I think about my multilingual students. As I am a Vietnamese person that that fled Vietnam and went to America, my first community were my Vietnamese relatives and the Vietnamese people from my temple. And we formed little groups as well. And so it's very similar to when I learned about that. And I was like, oh, wow, there is the experiences of multilingual students that they come together and they support each other is the same thing that uh, the literary societies of the 1900s, the Black literary societies, where people's, like, there are assets and when they come together, they really
1: magnify those assets. Exactly, and when you study, you know, one major part was collectivism. It was like each one teach one, we are responsible, we are stronger as a community. And that's what I mean, like I see that when I study different cultures. And so when I found that when they learn, when they organize to build their their education, they had five goals. They had identity development skills, intellectualism, criticality, like justice and joy. And I guarantee you like when we look across different cultures, we'll see those five pursuits show up. But skills only is not enough. It wasn't enough for my my student who I described earlier. Skills only was not enough for you and I coming up in education. Um, It's not enough for the children today. What do you think is enough? Well, I think those five pursuits is a starting point. And if somebody has something else, another model that children need, I'll listen to that too. I don't care what it is. It's not gonna be skills only. (laughs) So I think enough, I feel like because I've been studying this model for 12 years, I've had a research grant to study the model. I have seen the benefits of when we cultivate leadership and curriculum, around those five things is like teaching the whole child. It feels like enough because it feels like it's connected to the identity of the child, but also to the world. That feels like enough. It feels like it's connecting to the injustices of the world, but also the joys of the world. That feels very balanced to me. And if somebody had a sixth pursuit, (laughs) you know, maybe we need that, too. But, you know, I think if we start with those five, the teacher can then be that pedagogue to say what's enough. Dep- Cause we just have, you know, I work with teachers who have students who have been living in detainee centers that have experienced enough, a lot of oppression, you know, like I'm, we need to know our students to answer what is enough. What's enough for my own students compared to her students might be different. They have different experiences, different, um, different life's experiences so young that nobody should ever have to experience ever in their life.
0: Oh, I love that. I think that was one of the most tweetable moments right there. You said to know what's not enough, to know what's enough is to know my student, right? So you mm-hmm. have to know the student first to know what's enough for them. And So that's beautiful. Thank you for offering those, that, that framework. Would you, um, that model, would you mind drilling in just a little bit more into each of them?
1: Yes, uh, identity is teaching students um, who they are, any of their identities. It can be their racial, gender, sexual, community, environmental identity. You know, I taught a math lesson on slope and proportional relationship and taught about their identity of their and their interest riding roller coasters. <laughs> so some way connected to the lives of students or teach them about the cultural lives of others who might be different than them in any kind of way. But even those who are similar to us, we may not know, there's a lot of like, even blackness, Asian-ness, there's there's so much diversity in it. So like we have to move beyond those monoliths, right? Of like, this is one group of people. So that's identity. The second is skills. this is like the state' standards, the proficiencies needed across different content areas. Um, students will learn about slope and how to calculate proportional you know equations, relationships, that sort of thing. Um, intellect is new knowledge. That's number three. This is teaching students new people, places, things, uh, concepts, histories, current events. What we want them to be smarter about that's not skills centered. So in this case, I taught them about the history of roller coasters, like the first roller coaster. Um, Criticality is more of teaching students to name, understand, disrupt, hurt, pain, and harm in the world for better humanity for all. So any kind of hurt pain, it can be uh, how we can hurt ourselves by telling us that we're not enough, we're not beautiful, we're not smart. It can be how we hurt others through racism, homophobia, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism. It can be how we hurt the land, the air, like not taking like pollution or um, cruelty to living organisms. Criticality is, again, this disruption of harm that affects humanity in some kind of way. So like in the example that I'm giving, I talked about these ideas of amusement parks being segregated. You know, we talked about segregation of like schools and other things, institutions. We, not, we never really talked about the segregation of roller coasters and, and amusement, you know. So I just brought them into that history as they're contextualizing using their math to apply to something in the real world, amusement parks. And then for joy, joy is not just celebratory or having fun. Joy is beauty, Aesthetics, yes. um, ease, solutions, personal fulfillment, joy is teaching students to recognize, know these things, experience these things, and so you know students had to talk about why why the word amusement park, why do they call it that, and how we need joyful, amusing, or musings sort of in our lives. Um, how does that offer a healthy balance, right? So these five together are what what I call culturally and historically responsive learning and teaching, where curriculum looks different. Mm -hmm. Curriculum is situated in the context of the world, in the context of our lives. Students are saying less, why are we learning this? What does this have to do with me and my life? you know, they're seeing more authentic purpose and they're engaging in content areas that they've, they didn't engage in before because like in reading the math, if you are struggling in reading the math and that's the only thing the teacher teaches his skills, I have no other opportunities for entry points or to be successful. So yeah, this model has been beautiful to create, I call it artistic curriculum. You know, my curriculum writing is my artwork and I'm seeing teachers write beautiful unit plans around this uh, model.
0: Oh my goodness, I love that. You said my curriculum writing is my artwork. And I'm like, that's right. Like the the, the craft in which we write our curriculum, the, the way we sequence our lessons, the way we think about entry points, it's the way we think about perspective. Well, it is it is like an artist, Well. Huh? you just gave me another idea of like thinking rethinking about my my practice that was beautiful
1: yeah because you know we situate teachers we don't center their genius their artistic sensibilities we center them as like people to follow something that somebody else wrote for them to follow a script that's not what artists do they don't paint by numbers real artists <laughs> Real artists don't pay by numbers, you know. Real art, real writers don't don't fill in a template to write. That's not what artistry is. They don't follow a template. So that's what I'm moving toward. Is a different type of teacher. Teacher as genius. Teacher as artist.
0: Students as genius. Students as artists. Right. And students. Absolutely students' experiences, students' backgrounds as as valuable right, and worth being centered on. Absolutely. I never knew that amusement parks were segregated, but I'm like, wait, of course, that makes sense. Everything was segregated. If buses were segregated, <laughs> right? Right, At the amusement beaches. Park, right, then, then mm-hmm. of course amusement parks are gonna be segregated. Oh, well, I think, when I think about your model, I also think about uh, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's model of mirrors, windows and glass doors, right? And so it helps us really see others. It helps us see us and it helps us live in others' experiences. And so um, you're helping us see in a different way. And I, I feel like this is a, a, like another branching of, of culturally res- uh, responsive instruction. So do you wanna say something? I was gonna say that.
1: I was just gonna say, I was just smiling. I'm saying something through my smile <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sorry, I keep
0: I keep loving this and I keep forgetting what I was gonna say. this this' is really happening. I know
1: because there's just it's so many like so much. connecting parts and right. rest right the artistry, the identity, seeing yourself da, 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 da. it's just so much. This is what I wanted to say about the criticality part because right now, sadly,
0: in the U.S., people are saying, um, no, we can't teach uh, what is it? critical race theory. And now they're putting everything into that. How do you deal with, are you getting that pushback?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, the hateful messages sometimes. People don't know. You know, it's funny because I once said, to somebody, you don't know enough to debate with me. I, I, can, I don't debate with people who have not read a book. That's how I feel about these folks. I will I will offer and invite a debate because in, a debate is an intellectual practice and exercise that I love. However, <laughs> you know, people, James Baldwin wasn't going to just debate with anybody. So listen, People have, are, who are pushing these practices, right. they're either pushing them from uh, uh, policies, they're pushing the policies. They're either pushing it from a space of hate, space of fear, a space of ignorance. It is not from a space of love. And my only question is why don't you love black people? Because we are beautiful and why don't you love me? Because I am beautiful and joyful. That's my only question to them. I don't, I don't debate with people who haven't read anything. Uh, balanced on this work, because nobody, you are you you are too uh, shameful to say, you know. Let's stop teaching about Black people and Black liberation. That's what you really want to say, because they didn't ban feminism, they didn't ban critical theory. Why not be in critical theory? Oh, because that theory explains why people are oppressed due to all sorts of categories, including a category you might have, but a category you may not have is blackness. So that's my only response to them is, why don't you love us? We are so lovable. Only if you can open your heart to the love of us, it will elevate you. That's my only response.
0: Right. Don't see us as the other.
1: Exactly, Uh, they they do not want. You know how much how how must you feel about yourself to say that we are now centering more cultures diversity in school, and they're like, no no no, you're not gonna give up my white spot (laughs) or my children's spot. That's what they're saying. Like they. can you imagine Tan, if there was, if the sun was just reserved for a few people, the sun is too beautiful and massive to just say, it only shines on this group of people. There is time and space and sunlight for all of us, but that that arrogance and that hate for others will say to you, I only want the sun sh- to shine on my children who look like me. Shame on you. That's the only word, shame.
0: And and we really do see this in like, for example, I'm currently, I'm a social studies teacher and I teach. um, So I have to teach, for example, like the Renaissance, but then I go to the school and I'm like, you know, we're only teaching about dead white men, but there are other societies and other people worth talking about and how they've invented things, how they've created things, how they've contributed to society. Are we only going to talk about dead white men? And I never really thought about that. I I can name five inventors from Italy, from the Renaissance, but I can't name a single one from Asian backgrounds. What does that mean, right?
1: Yeah, and we don't even teach like the 1882 Exclusion Act in many schools that exclusion excluded Asian Americans in the United States and that hate and oppression. You know, we, we only want to teach things that make uh, old white men of the United States look like heroes. Just tell the truth about them. They, are you them? Are you. Are they you? you know, just tell the truth. And, you know, it will set us all free. So there's just so much we haven't taught. And so much we continue to teach, but we teach it in uh, dishonest ways.
0: Whew, you were coming to the truth right there. Let me tell you. Can you talk about your five, your model? So Uh, identity, skills, intellect, criticality, and joy in terms of students who are learning a different language? And and I guess when we're talking about the population of students learning English.
1: Well, so when it comes to like language education, I do a lot of work with language education and world languages, right? This is a little different. I think you're asking like um, those who are maybe coming from a different language, different country, a country other than United States and English language, we're learning to speak English. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, when the model is connected, uh, first, we're asking for identity. You know, um, the skill is always going to be students are learning, you know, different nuances and speaking skills in English. That's, that's the skill. But the identity can be Um, How do these words, uh, grammar, structure, connect to different languages I already know, right? Um, How do these words connect to my own life that I'm learning? Anything related to what the teacher is teaching. um, Let's say the teacher is teaching about how to talk about your community in English. And so for identity, it would be more like, What is my community? What do I know about what I love and know about my community, right? For intellect, um, depending on the topic of what is taught, we can think about, we can either teach like um, Englishes, the history of English. I had a student for intellect talk about um, different forms of English, Korean English, Spanglish, African American English, you know, I think that can be a great intellectual goal. Um, For criticality, or if it's a theme around what they're learning about like community, what is community that would be intellect. For criticality, it would be like, uh, why should English be decolonized? Know that like, with different types of English, that there are different norms and standards. It's not just white English standardization of English right I think that's criticality if it's a topic like community the teacher can address like what what are ways we should protect our community sustain our community and then for joys like what's the joy of language and using words that are special to you what's one word that's been special to you growing up you know um, that's joy to me, or they can talk about the amenities of their community, what they love best about their home, however they define home, what they like best about community, however they define community. So it can be sort of this general introduction of what is English kind of unit learning, or it can be like where I take the English language and English skills, but teach it in the context of a theme or a topic like community. So those are the things that came to mind first.
0: So I think looking at your model, I think it's very similar to, or it it supports the framework of uh, UDL, where universal design for learning, where there are multiple pathways for students to learn what they have to learn, right? And that, and so we, when we, when we're talking about language acquisition, when we're talking about language acquisition, we have all these lenses and there are those five lenses now that we can see and shape our instruction to be more responsive uh, for students.
1: Exactly. And like you said, there's different entry points. Sometimes you might start with skills or the standards. Sometimes you might start with joy. (laughs) You know, it's all depending on like who children are and what they need.
0: And it's not always starting with skills or intellect.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can start anywhere when you're designing something.
0: Well, I wanna ask you uh, one last question and then I'll wrap up with uh, like a closing question. In your, you have several guiding questions. You have um, who uh, who you say you are, what others say about you, uh, who you desire to be, How does my teaching help students learn about themselves
1: and others? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? those? Well, I think identity is dynamic. It's not static. You don't know who you are and then it just stays that way for the rest of your life. We're always changing with different um, experiences, different environments. Uh, where who I am today would be might be different than who I am tomorrow, depending on what happens in my life. Right. Right. And that's what I mean. Like, we have to first acknowledge that identity shifts, it changes. And we're always as children and both and as adults, where it's like a dance between who am I? Who am I not? Right. Who do others say I am? Now, that can go both ways. Sometimes people would say, well, Goldie, I think you're going to be this and that, I see it in you, like a positive thing. Or sometimes people say, oh, you're a black woman, you know, you, uh, you're you too loud, you're too complicated to be negative, these stereotypes. We are teaching students to listen to the positive and resist and, and um, and work toward against the the negative and make sense of the negative too. And then we're also teaching them to, of who they will become. You could have a fourth grader who you say, that's gonna be the next activist. That's gonna be the next poet. That's gonna be the next writer. That's gonna be the next teacher. That's gonna be the next caregiver. That's gonna be the next attorney you are nurturing their future selves. You're cultivating their future selves. In your instruction, so when you're teaching about community, you're saying for the, the future attorney, you're gonna say, what are some laws? I want you to study laws with for the community. You wanna be a teacher, so I want you to teach the community something new. You wanna be an activist, you're gonna name the problems. Of the community, right? You're going to be a writer. I want you to write something. A poet. I want you to write a poem. You know, this is what differentiation looks like, and this is what we should be doing to nurture their identity. So that's what I mean when I'm kind of going through those things with uh, teachers and students.
0: I love that you were talking about differentiation through identities, and that I've never really thought about that. I'm like, oh, yes, it makes so much sense, and it's easy, and it. This is how we make learning more relevant for students. Mm -hmm. So I'll end with, this has been so inspirational. Like who needs Mm -hmm. coffee when you have Dr. Goldie Muhammad?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the new quote. Who needs coffee when you have Dr. Goldie Muhammad? I think a lot of people might agree because sometimes I show up to talk so hyped. I don't know where it comes from. I'm not like, I'm not like this all the time, but when I'm around like genius and greatness and teachers, I get so like energized. So (laughs) that's funny that you said that.
0: Well, you're giving us good energy. Let's end with uh, this metaphor. It's called traffic light teaching. It's a red light, something that you ask teachers to stop doing. Yellow light is something you would ask teachers to start doing. And a green light is something you would ask teachers to continue doing in their practice. So stop, start, keep doing.
1: Okay. Okay, stop. (laughs) Teaching skills only with worksheets only, with textbooks only. Stop um, uh, only collecting data on reading and math levels, but collect data and teach about identity, um, criticality and joy. Um, Start drinking more water (laughs) if you're not. Water is a beautiful metaphor, and it can help sustain us during difficulties. and continue showing up every day with excellence, Um, continue reading, cultivating your own genius. Um, To teach a genius, you have to be the genius Um, and continue loving our children deeply because they know when they are loved and when they're not. And so that would be my stoplight uh, suggestions.
0: Well, I'll end with the tree here. When I think about a tree, well, trees are always rooted. They are held up by their roots, not up by their branches. Right. Mm. And so you are helping us remember to be rooted in students' strengths and what they bring to school. So, Dr. Goli Mohammed, it has been a pleasure and an honor. So thank you for helping us be rooted in strengths. That's beautiful. Thank
1: you.
0: Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and am sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I think the central message here for me is to pause and to constantly ask myself if I am letting the skills, the standards and the curriculum lead the instruction or Am I letting students' identities lead the instruction? My favorite guiding question is, does my instruction help students learn about themselves, others, and the world? I also thought her integration of the model while acquiring another language was so interesting and thoughtful. I'll have to learn more about these five entry points in her model as they can be applied to making learning more relevant to students of all nationalities and identities. Because when we center on exactly that, identities and not just skills, learning becomes more relevant and meaningful. With this model in mind, I can see how we can teach in a way that cultivates genius. In the next podcast, we'll have Dr. Kate Seltzer talk about the translanguaging classroom. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.